Welcome to the Simplecast. On this episode, Chris will be speaking with Allie Fallon. She's the author of the memoir, Packing Light. She's an extraordinary writing coach. And best of all, she thinks I'm remarkable. And she wants me to think that too. Chris and Allie will be talking today about Chapter 3. Despite your fears and failures, you're good enough because God is good. Now, here's Chris. Allie, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, let's go ahead and jump right in. Um, I'm very excited. I feel like you're the perfect voice to kind of wrestle through some of these questions. I've, I've read your work often, and there's one thing I would say is you are trying to be very open and authentic about your walk in life and kind of what it means to, to, to struggle and to take risk and to explore. And so um, thank you. And let's jump into kind of the first question, Allie. I would love for kind of the listeners just to get to know a little bit about you. So can you kind of tell us about yourself and what you're up to? Yeah. So I am a writer and a writing coach, and I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I stumbled, well, that's not totally, I was going to say I stumbled into this by accident, which isn't totally true. I've always known since I was really young that I wanted to be an author. But, you know, like all of us, I've been on a journey of trying to figure out how to make that a reality for myself. And I, you know, had people when I was younger in high school and early college trying to choose a major say to me things like, uh, you know, you can't make a living as a writer. You're going to need a backup plan. So I, I, my backup plan was to be a teacher and I got a degree in education and then well, a degree in English and then a master's degree in education. And I taught for a couple of years and then uh, you know, two or and a half or three years into teaching kind of realized that this wasn't my dream. <laughs> it wasn't what I wanted to do forever. And I loved a lot of aspects of teaching, but it just teaching in the public school system was not going to be a, a realistic career for me for 30 years. So, <laughs> so I took this big leap, quit my job, went on a road trip across the country. I wrote the book Packing Light, Thoughts on Living Life with Less Baggage. And that was my first leap into this world of being a writer and an author and the, the part that happened accidentally was this piece of being a writing coach. That was something I didn't see coming or expect, but it's been such a great fit for me because what I found was that, you know, if you're, unless you're writing multiple books a year, it's pretty, or unless you're selling millions of copies of your books, it's pretty hard to make a good living writing books. Yeah, yeah. So people will write about that piece of it. But the neat thing has been that I get to work with other writers who are working on their books. So I've coached hundreds of writers through the process of writing their books or just finishing a creative project like launching a blog or writing a short ebook or working on a, you know, any, really any kind of creative project that involves writing. I've been involved in hundreds of those kinds of projects with people and it's really fulfilling work and it's fun and I get to work with people one-on-one and it's a great way to make a living, you know, to supplement my income as an author. So it sounds like you're not very busy. I'm sorry. What was that? It sounds like you're not very busy. Yeah, no, no, hardly ever. I just (laughs) kind of sit around most of the day. That's awesome. Well, hey, real quick, you're, you're, you're from Nashville, or you live mm-hmm. in Nashville. Um, I think you're from the West Coast, if memory serves me right. I but, am, yeah. I grew up in Portland. Awesome, I live yeah. In Nashville. So, okay, favorite coffee shop in Nashville. you got to give us one. One favorite coffee shop. Well, my favorite coffee shop is called The Post. Now, if you talk to people who are like real coffee snobs in Nashville, they would make fun of me for that because there are other coffee shops like crema everybody loves crema everybody loves barista parlor there are many amazing places to go drink coffee in nashville but the reason i love the post is they have great coffee but it's also locally owned by a a woman named tanya who i've become friends with and i just love her and what she does and 
they also have tons of gluten-free pastries, which is like just for me personally works out really nicely. Awesome. I eat way too many cinnamon rolls. And it's, <laughs> it's a fun spot to yeah. sit and work. Things. All right. If you're in Nashville, go check out The Post, Allie's favorite coffee shop. So real quick, I wanted to back up um, and kind of share – Briefly, when I started Help One Now, I remember I had this dream to kind of care for these 32 orphans in Zimbabwe. I had this, you know, aha moment experience when I went to on a trip there. But the economy was literally falling apart, and people were telling me I'm crazy. I'm taking all these risks. It's not going to work out. And I remember just just being, you know, just being paralyzed by this question in my mind: Can I take the leap? And really pursue kind of this dream that I had to start a nonprofit. And so when you back up, when you kind of left teaching to kind of do this road trip around America, can you talk to us about what that was like, why you did that, and just especially the risk part? Because my assumption is you're a different person after that trip was over than when you started. Totally. Yeah, well, I was terrified. I remember being completely terrified and actually sort of thinking to myself, like, okay, so I'm just going to go ahead and ruin my life. Like, this is going to be the worst decision I've ever made, <laughs> but I'm going to regret it if I don't sort of try it. But, you know, I just played out all the worst case scenario options in my mind. And one of my biggest fears was finances because yeah. I'm quitting this job that's, you know, as a teacher, it's not like you're getting, it's not like you're raking in the dough, but you have a steady paycheck coming you've got really great benefits, you know, you show up to the same place every day and see the same people. There's this predictability to it. So I was like, okay, so I'm going to quit my job. And it's not like I've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in a savings account somewhere. I don't have anyone. I don't have any like trust funds that are kicking in anytime soon. So I don't really know how I'm going to make money. And I know I can make, you know, a little bit here and there doing some freelance writing. I was doing copywriting and stuff like that and traveled with a friend who was a musician. So she was going to play a few shows and, I was helping her promote the shows, so we were sharing that money to fill our tank with gas and all this stuff. But in my mind, I just thought, like, this is going to be the worst financial mistake I've ever made. Not to mention I was putting – I mean, I had all this school debt that yeah, I yep. was putting into deferment while I was gone. And I'm just like, this is, you know, this is like the opposite of what Dave Ramsey tell you, tells you to do. Like, what am I thinking? <laughs> how, you know, how could I possibly be thinking this was a good idea? But something inside of me just told me – like, you are going to really regret this if you don't take this chance. So finances, that was one major thing I was afraid of. The other, you know, it's funny, the illogical things we tell ourselves when we're really scared of something. But the other completely illogical thing I told myself was that if I quit my full-time job and gave up my apartment in the city and, you know, sold all my stuff and went on this trip, that that I was never going to get married. Nobody, no man would ever take mm. me seriously because... You know, I, like what a childish thing for me to do to sort of move backwards in my life, you know, which is a ridiculous fear, but it was a, a real fear for me at the time. And so, so yeah, so I had all these fears and I think I actually remember very distinctly there being a day when I let these fears get the best of me. I remember laying in bed awake late one night and, and you even talk about this in your book, that feeling of like laying awake yep, yep. <laughs> and it's so Many quiet. Nights. So you let all these fears really get to you in those times when you're just like laying there staring at ceiling fan. And I, I laid awake almost all night, hardly got any sleep, woke up the next morning and I was just like, I can't do this. I'm not, I'm not going to go. And so I called my friend who was supposed to come on the trip with me and I'm like, Hey, meet me at a coffee shop. And we went and met at a coffee shop. And I said to her, I can't go. And I mean, at this point we were like a month away from leaving, but I just told her like, I'm like, we're, I'm going to ruin everything. You know, I'm going to be broke and, 
financially destitute and I'm never going to get married and people are going to, my family's going to think I'm crazy and never going to be able to find another job. And she just said to me, you can, that's a choice that you get to make. Nobody's going to force you to go on this trip. But she said, I think when you look back, if you don't go, you're really, that's something you're really going to regret. And that was a thought I'd already had to myself, but also the wake up call for me was like, Oh, nobody's forcing me to go. Like I actually get to make a choice about what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. So I can either, I have agency here, so I can either choose to live this really boring life that's sort of like safe and mediocre and fine, Mm. or I can choose to take this big risk. And yeah, it's a big risk. And I have to own all of the possible consequences of that risk. But I also get to own all of the beauty and all of the rewards and all of the experiences and all of the lessons I'm going to learn along the way. And so it was like this wake up call. Like I'm not, I think, you know, in my Christian upbringing, I was sort of sitting around waiting for God to show me so clearly what I was supposed to do. And I think in that moment I realized, oh, it's not a supposed to. It's literally just like the invitation is available to live your life however you choose to live it, and I get to make the decision here. And ultimately, in my in my deepest self, I wanted to take the risk, so I did. That's awesome. And I think it's interesting too when we when we kind of take a plunge, we take a risk, we kind of go all in. We often think it's going to work 100% right, or it's going to be 100% wrong. And I think what you're <laughs> trying to say a little bit is like it's a little, it's a mixture of both, right? There are struggles, yeah. and there's this beauty. And I think when people are trying to kind of move forward in their life. They, they often don't realize it's going to be that mixture. And yet the the journey matters so much if that's kind of, totally. you know, in your heart. And so I know when I was starting help one now, that was my struggle. Like there's no way I can go to sleep at night without doing this. But, the, yeah. but it was a, it was a huge struggle. So, so let me ask you one question. You know, you take this trip around the country. It was kind of an identity builder for you on many levels. You kind of left being a teacher, kind of the formal <laughs> job, the career path. Now you're kind of out there in this, you know, journey. You're exploring kind of this new way. But talk about the transition kind of from what it meant to go from that level to becoming a full-time author, writer, coach. Because I know one of the one of the things I talked about in Chapter 3, and, and it, it was hard, but it was just really tough for me to, like, leave this really comfortable job as a pastor with a mm-hmm. bunch of – I was doing life in Austin, eating tacos with all these amazing friends, growing church, and I'm like – I'm going to be the biggest idiot ever if I leave this behind in 2009 when the economy is falling apart. And, but I, I could not not do it, right? Like yeah. I had to pursue this calling. So tell us a little bit about kind of how, what was that moment where you knew writing was what you had no other option but to do? Well, weirdly, I mean, I feel it's such a hard question to answer because I feel like my whole life I knew that writing was what I needed to do. It was the thing that I couldn't not do. Yeah which is what I always tell people when they're asking me, you know, like what, what, uh, what's my calling? What, you know, what should I pursue? And I think, you know, our callings in life can sometimes be different than how we make money, which is a whole other train <laughs> of thought. But I think for me, like the thing that I'm called to do is the thing that I can't, I can't not do it. So even when I was in, I remember being in college and I would, I'm, I'm like, you know, full-time student, I'm supposed to be focusing on reading this textbook and writing a paper and instead I'd be writing a poem or like I'd start to try to write a paper and instead I would write this short story or it was just the thing that even when I was teaching on my breaks you know I'd be I'm supposed to go photocopy stuff for my next class and instead I'm like oh I gotta get this thought down or this like blog post or idea that's in my head I've got to get it down on the paper 
Uh, it was how I coped with grief. It was how it was a survival technique for me. It was, you know, how I know what I think. Writing is how I know what I think. I don't know what I think until I put the words on paper. So, and then I think, you know, there was a moment, the, the moment that I decided to go on the trip the first time was at a wedding and I was 26 years old at the time and I'm at a wedding of a close friend of mine. And this is like, you know, one of the last in a group of close friends of mine who are getting married. And so I'm feeling all the things and watching her get married and feeling like, Oh, what am I doing with my life? And explaining to this friend of mine who I ended up going on the road trip with, I'm explaining to her about how I was really dissatisfied with my job, but it wasn't because it was a bad job. It was just like, it's just not the right job for me right now. And how I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do. And she said to me, well, what would you do if you could wake up tomorrow and do whatever you wanted? So if you didn't have this job and you didn't have to worry about money and you weren't trying to impress your parents or, you know, please the people in your life who you think you need to please, what would you just, what would you do if you could just wake up tomorrow and do whatever? And, and honestly, my first response to her was anger because I felt like, why would you ask me that question when nobody gets to live their life like that? That's just pointless. But I think what the anger was hiding or blocking was this sense that there was something waking up inside of me that had always, always, always been there. This feeling that I always have known that I'm supposed to write a book and I've just been putting it off because I'm freaked out and I'm scared and I'm, I don't know how to make it happen and I don't know what the next step is and I'm terrified to take the next step and all of these things. And so to wake up those deep desires in us when we aren't sure we know how to actualize them is probably one of the most terrifying things in life, I think. So I think most of us live this sort of, we stuff those deep desires and we live this sort of complacent, mm. yep. mediocre, fine life. It's a yep. fine life. It's not bad. It's just yep. fine because we're terrified of what might happen if we really allow ourselves to admit to ourselves what we're supposed to do or what we, you know, those deep desires that I, I believe God has kind of written into us or built into us. So once I allowed myself to admit that that was there, it's like it flipped everything upside down. And when I think of kingdom of heaven, you know, I think of like this upside down, everything that we thought was true is not true. Mm -hmm. And everything we thought was false is not false. And everything, you know, every path we thought was the right path might not be the right path. And, and it's just this upside down world where nothing sort of makes sense anymore. And you're like, and that was the feeling I talked about before of just being like, well, I'm about to screw up my life. All right, let's just (laughs) go for it. You know, in a really beautiful way. Yeah. Like I, I wrote a blog post once called, uh, something like the day that God, the day God asked me to ruin my life mm-hmm. and talking about that idea that God's just like, go ahead, go, you try to ruin your life. I dare you, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's great. All right. So quick question then. So you kind of, you kind of moved from being a teacher to having this journey across America. Kind of, I mean, love was finding yourself. One of the things I tackle in, in chapter three of the book, um, is really we all need these guides in life, right? These people who help lead us forward. And for me, Stephen and Amy, friends of mine who lived in Cape Town, for five years they kept asking me to come and to visit mm-hmm. and to experience kind of, you know, what it means to live in extreme poverty. And I kept ignoring them. But they didn't give up. And so I think when I look at my life now, I think of Stephen and Amy and how much, you know, they've impacted my life just because they, they guided me kind of to the next level or next layer to experience kind of, you know, what God had for me. And so from a writing perspective or from a calling or just even from a life perspective, one, you, you help guide others. And I'm assuming you also have guides. So can you talk to us about like what that means to have a guide to mentor others and kind of how it connects to your life and calling? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, 
guides come to us in unexpected places in unexpected ways. I think a lot of our guides in life are people who, I mean, some of them are more obvious, right? Like some people step into our life and directly mentor us or tell us, you know, they step into a mentorship, an actual mentorship role. Okay. And that seems more obvious that there are guides. So I definitely have people like that. And then I have people who I look up to in different areas of my life, like people in the realm of writing who I look up to people like Cheryl Strait and Donald Miller and, um, and Anne Lamott and Brene Brown and Liz Gilbert, you know, all these people who I look up to and think like, okay, that they're on a path that I want to be on. And so what can I learn from them? So there's that piece of it. But then I think there's a lot of people in our lives who are guides who cause us a lot of pain. Mm. And so like, you know, the, the friend who I traveled with on the trip, she was a major guide for me. I mean, and, and I was a guide for her too. I know we've talked about this and yeah. somehow we made it, we lived in a car together basically for seven months or so and didn't wow. try to kill each other. It's impressive. Yeah, I know. I don't know. I don't know how exactly we pulled that off, but, but yeah, I think, you know, there were moments where we maybe wanted to try to kill each other. We just had really different, have really different personalities. And so, and in that sense, you know, there are these moments where you're like, how am I surviving with this person in my life? But, but they also become your greatest guides because they show you parts of yourself you never knew existed. And, and I think oftentimes when we have someone in our life who the person who we ruminate about or obsess about or most want to criticize or who most irks us and most pisses us off, those are often the people who become our greatest guides because they, mm. they just have something to show us. Yeah, so, great. yeah, so that's one thing I would say about guides is that oftentimes they come in these really unexpected forms. Sometimes it comes through pain. A lot of times I think it comes through pain. Yeah, it's interesting because we often don't want to think of a guide as someone who's going to cause us pain, but they're going to guide us to like the next, you know, the next level or the next place that we're hoping to get to. But oftentimes, you know, it is. You have to experience a lot of pain before you get to experience the joy even of what that looks like. Mm-hmm. So, okay, quick question. One of the reasons why I wanted to write the book is because I wanted to help guide some other folks. Because when we talk about extreme poverty and doing good and loving your neighbor and all, all there's, you know, there's so much weight in our world right now. So, so many challenges, so many difficulties, so many unclear answers. Um, and so real quick, just talk to us a little bit. And I guess what I was trying to do even writing the book is when I, when I came back from Zimbabwe, I would tell people all these really crazy stories about orphans and trafficking and, you know, folks who don't have anything to eat. And they would be so overwhelmed, my friends that were living in Austin and, you know, in America, kind of middle, upper middle class set of people. And one of the things I recognized is I needed to extend grace to them because they didn't get to experience what I experienced. And I'm hoping when people read the book, they'll just, there'll be this explosion of grace. No, they'll be, they'll be relaxed as they kind of deal with some of the tensions of extreme poverty and global orphan care and all the things that we deal with. So can you tell us just a little bit about kind of what grace looks and feels like in your life and how we can kind of apply that to some of these issues that we're dealing with around the world? Yeah, well, I would say that a big lesson for me lately has been that until we can extend grace to ourselves, we don't have grace to give to Mm. anyone else. Until we can open ourselves to receive the grace that's here and available for us right now, we just don't have it have it to give, you know? So like one thing that a major lesson for me that I've been trying to pass on through some of my writing recently is that the, we can know and understand our criticisms of ourselves by listening to our criticisms of other people. So when, if you find yourself criticizing someone for whatever reason, ask yourself how that's a self criticism. So how is that a criticism of myself? 
Um, and I read this quote, this fantastic quote by Bob Goff a couple months ago on social media somewhere that said something to the effect of grace means we can stop paying off our future. Mm. No, stop paying off our past with our future. Yeah. So, and I think so many of us live in this state where we feel guilty about something in our past. And it's not even really about usually about an incident. It's usually, it's more, it's more of an identity issue than that. We feel guilty about who we are in the world. And because we feel guilty about that, we're paying off our future with our past. So we're not actually giving ourselves permission to feel happy or to feel satisfied or to feel in love or to feel connected to our friends or to have a job we like or to do something we enjoy because we feel so guilty for who we are in the world. And I think, I mean, I don't know, I feel like this could be controversial. I don't, I'm not sure, but I think We, we love happens. controversy. Oh, good. <laughs> A lot of times with people who are born into privilege, we don't even recognize how guilty we feel that we've been born into privilege, mm. but we do. And it's part of why you think that it's someone's ignorance that prevents them from caring about other people in the world who don't have the same privilege that we do. And I don't think it's ignorance. I think more often than not, 95, probably 98% of the time it is, we feel so guilty for mm. the fact that we have privilege and we didn't earn it, that we are so terrified of feeling that guilt that we actually can't let ourselves pay attention. And that what happens is the minute that we realize like, I didn't actually choose this. I was just like, I didn't choose where I was born any more than the kid in Zimbabwe who doesn't have anything to eat chose where he was born. I didn't choose where I was born. It's all grace. Every single thing is grace. And I can stop trying to pay off my past with my future. So like I can just live presently in the here and now I can accept all the love that's available to me. I can accept all the resources that are available to me, I can, and I, and then what happens is once we accept that and we stop feeling guilty for it is then it begins the, the flow of energy begins to flow through us instead of stopping, you know, out of that feeling of guilt, like, Ooh, I don't yeah. want, I don't want to have too much cause I feel so guilty. Then the, the flow of resources begin to flow through us and everything we have, we want to give away cause, yep. cause we don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. It's not our, you know, there's this great book called the soul of money and I can't remember the name of the author, but if anyone is struggling with feelings of guilt for being born into privilege, it's a fantastic book to read. It completely shifted my whole view on money and on resources. It's just, it's really amazing. It's a That's great book. Fair. We'll find that and add it to the show notes. Cool. Um, it, it's, it's interesting because one of the things we've experienced with, you know, kind of running a nonprofit now for, for seven years is the people who engage at a guilt always disengage somewhere down the road. They yep. never stay there because you can't, you you can't care for your neighbor because you feel guilty for the life that you have. You have to care for right. your neighbor because you just want to care, and it's not really about you; it's about them. And so I think it's a struggle we all have as we try to process like how fortunate am I to grow up in this neighborhood or to be with this family or to have access to this education. But one thing I tell people all the time is like we're trying to give people around the world the same opportunities that we have: education and mm-hmm. and, and hope and food and you know jobs and whatnot so okay last question because i know this is a theme that, that you, you 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 use on social media in your writing in your blog can you just talk about hope you tend to 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 really want to bring hope to your audience to the people who pay attention to your work to those around you can you just close us off with just talking about what it does it mean to have hope especially when there's just so much chaos going on in the world that we live in today well i would say you know, how do we even live without hope? <laughs> and hope, I think I'm learning more and more 
the older I get is less about, I used to think of hope like this optimism kind of like thinking that all the things like all the events of my life were going to, I'm not explaining this very well, but I used to think that I needed to be optimistic. And in Mm. order to be optimistic, I needed to think that all the events of my life were going to turn out just great. Like it was going to be the end of this romantic comedy, you know, and everything was going to come together and it was all going to be perfect. And I think I'm realizing hope is so much less about outcomes. And we put so much weight in our culture, in Western culture on outcomes Mm. that we think if you just follow this three-step process or this five-step formula, or you just go through these 10, you know, you follow these 10 rules, then at the end of the day, everything's going to work out great for you. And that is not the message of the gospel ever, you know? And so I think when we put our hope in outcomes, we're disappointed. And when we put our hope in Christ, we're never disappointed. And the hope in Christ is that, you know, that, like I said, that it's all grace. Like the grace is here. It's present right now. The love is available to us right this minute, no matter how, I want to say a cuss word, no matter how bad (laughs) the outcome is, you know, like I'm walking through one of the most terrible seasons in my personal life that I ever could have imagined. Didn't see it coming, didn't expect it. And it's funny because I had a friend, I was talking on the phone with a friend and she said, are you, how are you feeling? Are you okay? Are you, are you mad at God? Like, are you, and I'm just like, no, weirdly, no. I mean, maybe I feel like maybe I could be, or, or I could see how some people would be, but Strangely, I just feel like God is so present in the midst of the tragedy that the, that presence of God is all I ever wanted. You know, it's that's like, if I have that, I have everything. So everything else can fade away and everything else will fade away. And if I have that that connection, it's like a, a direct connection to the divine. You know, I feel like the, yeah. I've talked about like the curtain between my, between my life here on earth and heaven has gotten so thin since everything in my personal life just fell apart out of nowhere, you know, that that feeling of having that direct connection to the divine is, I think it's all we really long for. I know it's all we really long for as humans. C.S. Lewis writes a lot about that. And, and so we think we long for all these other things and especially in the West, right? Because we have all Mm -hmm. these resources. So we can, we think we can buy the thing that's going to make us feel that way. And it, it does for a few minutes, it makes us feel that way. We can buy something new to wear or something great to eat, or we can buy this great experience or go to this resort. And none of those things are bad things and none of them are wrong, but they're never going to satisfy the way that, that the love of God satisfies us. And I think until you've lived that, I I really do think that's why when you go visit a third world country, you know, especially in Haiti, they've been through this incredible tragedy and you meet these people who are deeply hopeful. And it's because, something happens when you walk through tragedy and you realize God is still near. And in fact, maybe more near than he was when you were building your own little empire with all your, your money and your stuff. Yeah. We, we tell people all the time, it's, it's amazing. Some of my guides, you know, are some of the poorest people in the world. If you, you know, on a material level, they would be considered the, you know, the bottom billion. And yet they are my mentors and Mm -hmm. um, the way they live their life and the way they serve their communities and the way they love God and their neighbor. It's amazing. And so you're with these, you know, these men and women and you're like, Oh my gosh, they don't, they don't have a lot, but they, but they have everything. And so they've taught me Mm -hmm. so much about what it means to have hope and to continue to, you know, pursue justice in our world Mm -hmm. so hey thank you so much Allie for joining us today I could there's so many things I would love to talk to you about thank you for just you know being authentic and transparent and um, sharing your journey with us 
real quickly, if some if listeners want to go find you, how, how can they? What's your website? What's your socials? Yeah. How can they connect with you? My website is allisonfallon.com. So two L's, A L L I S O N, and then Fallon like Jimmy Fallon.com. Nice. And then on Twitter, it's at Miss Allie Fallon, M I S S A L L Y Fallon.com. Oh, well, not dot com. At. <laughs> awesome. And you can also find her work in Amazon and pick up her books. And we will have all of those links in the show notes. And so, Allie, thank you so much for joining us. Looking forward to continue to follow your journey. Maybe you'll have another road trip, but this time around the world. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it so awesome. much. Thanks All right. For having me. Yeah, have a good day. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Chris and Allison. You'll find links to Allison's books as well as her website at our show page. You can follow her on Twitter at Miss Allie Fallon. Follow her on Instagram at Allie Fallon. Follow Chris at Chris Marlowe. The Simplecast is produced by Austin Collins and me, Ken Nussbaum. And our music is courtesy of Lamar Stockton. You can find out more from him at lamarstockton.com. For Chris Marlowe and Allie Fallon, thanks for listening. And until next time, do good, do good well, and join us to do good together. 